Good morning. This morning I'll be reading Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Morning. How's it going? All right. That was a cool report, Carly. Also, if you guys remember, several months ago, we prayed for Southeast Asia and particularly for India. So that's a really encouraging report to hear, specifically the Unreached People Group. So that's, that's awesome. In 1958, about 60 years ago, uh, there was a pastor in a small town in Pennsylvania, a rural farming town. His name was David Wilkerson. And he started getting to this point where just feeling a little bit stagnant as a pastor and in his ministry, and so he made this commitment to begin praying more than he ever really had. And so every night, uh, for about one to two hours, he would go into his study and he would pray after the kids went to bed and it was evening, just praying all the time. While that's happening in Pennsylvania, over in New York City, there is a journalist, kind of a highbrow guy that worked with a lot of wealthy and uh, elite people in Manhattan. His name was John Sherrill. Pretty nominal Christian, uh, not real serious about his faith, but kind of out of nowhere became uncharacteristically burdened for the city of New York. And so he starts praying that God would do something for the city. A third person also begins praying. This person was a Bible college student named Dick Simmons in New York, and he just started feeling like the teenage violence, the gangs in New York was, was getting to a point that God really needed to do something. And so he starts praying fervently. And actually one night, uh, Dick Simmons was down by the Hudson River and praying loudly, like crying out to God, so much so that someone called the police on him. And the police come up, and they're asking what in the world is going on. And he, and he said, I'm, I'm praying that God would send laborers into the harvest of New York City. The police didn't really know what to do with that. <laughs> like, okay, just keep it down. And, uh, and so he just keeps praying. Now, he did not know the night that he was praying, the police came. A few nights before that, over in Pennsylvania, the pastor, David Wilkerson, He had been praying and uh, looking through, I can't remember if it was Time or Life magazine, but uh, the picture of four uh, teenagers who were going to face trial for a murder, four teenage gang members from New York. He saw their faces and saw the news story, and out of nowhere, I mean, this guy was not at all had like a heart for troubled youth or anything like that. He just starts weeping. I mean, he breaks down and starts sobbing as a result of this news story and seeing these boys' faces. And he just gets this feeling like, I have got to tell them about God. I've got to tell them about Jesus. I've got to let them know that there's hope for their life. Like, it just became 
all-consuming to him. So he goes to his church, small rural church, not a lot of money, and he basically says, will you fund me as a short-term missionary to New York City? And they do. And so he starts, the same night that Dick Simmons is praying and being investigated by the police, David Wilkerson is on the highway driving to New York with this conviction that he has got to do something for gang members in New York City. What follows is an amazing story. It's, it's all highlighted in this book. It's called The Cross and the Switchblade. David Wilkerson begins ministering to teenage gang members all throughout New York. And it's basically a small revival within the city happens. Him and the Bible college student will go on to create what would become uh, one of the most success, successful teenage rehab ministries in the world for drug-addicted teens coming out of that lifestyle. John Sherrill, the, mich- or the uh, uh, journalist, uh, helped David Wilkerson write the book to share what God was doing. And what I'm wanting you to see is that these three guys, and I'm certain that there were many others in New York praying for the city, God responds by sending someone. God responds by sending David Wilkerson and then others with him come alongside and, and they start ministering to these teens in an incredible way. There was a pastor in the 1700s about uh, 200 years before uh, the cross and the switchblade uh, named Jonathan Edwards. And he lived during the Great Awakening, which was a big revival. And he wrote this. He said, When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. So last week we talked about persistence in prayer, and this week we're going to talk about prayer and the harvest, prayer and mission or outreach. And so open your Bibles with me uh, to Matthew chapter 9. That's what Kirsten read for us, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. It says... uh, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So we're just going to hit this a little bit verse by verse. And this opening verse, actually, in 35, where it says that Jesus is going through all the towns and villages, and he's teaching, preaching, and healing. Uh, Really what that is, is it's actually a summary statement uh, of what's been happening in chapters 5 through 9. In fact, a lot of theologians uh, or commentators think that it kind of should end um, the previous section as opposed to starting the new one. If your Bibles have little headers, Usually the header will start right before verse 35. Some people say, well, maybe this verse should go before that header. By the way, those headers are not um, inspired. Those were added later by um, other people. But the reason why is because it's really summarizing exactly what's happening, happening because the way that Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is laid out is, at least up to this point, is chapters one through four tell the story of Jesus' birth, uh, his infancy, it tells the story of his baptism and then his temptation in the desert. Those first four chapters have, if I'm remembering right, either none or very little of Jesus actually doing ministry. 
it's all kind of preceding. It's all leading up to it. And at the very end of four and kind of in the beginning of five, that's when Jesus actually begins doing what we think of his ministry. He begins doing this. He begins teaching and preaching and healing. In fact, Matthew 5 is the beginning of his famous Sermon on the Mount. And so he'll do that for five through seven and then a few chapters, and then the next couple of chapters are him kind of traveling about teaching, preaching, and healing. And we're told in these four chapters of 10 individual stories, episodes of Jesus healing individuals. But then in chapter eight, it also just says that he healed many. So we know that there's at least 10 plus many, okay? So dozens, maybe hundreds, we don't know, but Jesus had done a lot of healing. And so obviously, doing all this teaching and healing, he becomes sort of a little bit of a local celebrity, and he gathers a following. So that's why in verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, people are hearing about Christ, they're hearing that he can heal them, that he teaches them differently than their current teachers do. And so he starts gathering a bit of a crowd, and when he sees them, he sees a crowd of broken and hurting people, and it says that he has compassion on them because they're like shepherdless sheep. And this verse reminds me of uh, high school because uh, there were days when I would come home and there was a girl that lived next door to us whose parents um, just weren't really there. And even if they were there, they weren't really there, if, 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 you, count, if you follow me. And so I remember we'd come home and she'd kind of just be hanging out around our house, sometimes asking if we would make her macaroni and cheese for dinner. And, you know, it was just sad. She was just kind of wandering like sheep without a shepherd. She's not very old, maybe 10-ish, uh, working in summer camp ministry and youth ministry for a while. I've seen, I've seen a lot of kids like that. And some of them will get into trouble and some will just kind of wander and not really knowing what to do. And your heart kind of breaks when you hear stories like that. And here Jesus is seeing a crowd, not, not only of children, it seems there's men, women, and children, they're all kind of like that. They're all kind of like wandering. They just need someone to care for them. And that's not being done. This phrase where it says that he had compassion on, on them, that's gonna show up three other times in the Gospel of Matthew. Two of those will be almost the same sort of scenario where he sees a crowd and he'll actually say it. This is describing it, but he'll actually verbalize, I have compassion on these people. That's how it starts with the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. He says, I have compassion on them, so let's give them some food. I, I mentioned this a little bit last week, but I want to just share it again. Jesus is a compassionate guy. He cares for you and for me. And he cared for them. Other ways that this phrase is translated is, um, is his heart broke for them. Or his heart went out to them. It's something that he feels. It's not that he kind of just intellectually understands. This is kind of a sad scenario. I mean, he kind of, he feels it in his, in his stomach, in his gut. He feels sadness for these people. This is something my wife is really good at, is empathy and compassion, which is good for all of you because if it was just me, that's not good. <laughs> she naturally, when someone is sick or hurting or she just hears, she'll, she'll send a card or she'll just instinctively, instinctively think, maybe we should offer to make them a meal or do something. And I'm like, that's a great idea. I never would have thought of that, ever. 
Um, and she just, and some of you are like that. Some of you instinctively care for people, which is great because it compensates for the rest of us who have the emotional intelligence of a peanut. <laughs> I have to be told, do something. And you reflect, you reflect Christ's character in that way. He cares. He has compassion. And this is something we need. This is something I've asked the Lord to grow me in. And I would encourage you, if you're not good at it, ask the Lord to grow you in. Because even if you're not naturally that way, that's not an excuse. Uh, we need to ask God to break our hearts. Um, I'm going to paint in a broad brush stroke here. And I know this is a generalization and that there are exceptions to this. But let me just say to men and especially fathers in the room, compassion, showing emotion, showing affection, that is not a sign of weakness. There's nothing manly about being indifferent to pain in a person's life. There's nothing manly about that. Christ, who is the epitome of a godly man, here and in other passages, shows emotion, shows compassion and affection for people. Now, he's not an emotional mess and a drama queen where somebody sneezes and he just breaks down, right? He appropriately emotes for people. And so, so, for men and for anyone else in the room who might think there's something godly about removing ourselves from pain, that's just, not, that's just not what the Bible teaches. Compassion is really a form of emotional selflessness. It's caring for and loving for another person the same way you would yourself in that same circumstance. Because we're all pretty good at self-pity, right? I am. And we do just for, we think and feel for others the same way we would think and feel for ourselves. And the best way, the best resource for being able to do that is to experience Christ's compassion on us. First uh, John 4, 9, I mean, it's using a different words, but same sort of concept. First John 4, 9 says that we love because he first loved us. Because Christ has had compassion on me and has loved me, I no longer need to focus exclusively on myself. I am now all the more able to focus on another. And, and when I'm walking in the spirit, that actually happens. And so out of Christ's compassion on me, I'm able to have compassion on others. And so I'm just asking that we as a church, we would pray that God would help us to have that compassion, that, that heart, that love for broken and hurting people, that we would care for others. And some of us would want to resist that because taking on the emotional weight of someone else's pain, it can be overwhelming. I mean, it can be a lot. If you look out into kind of the sea of sadness, it can feel pretty quickly like you're drowning in it. And you can sort of adopt this nihilistic view of, you know, you can't save every puppy in the pound, so I don't know if, if I do anything, is it worth anything? Is it ultimately meaningless? This is something very real. It's called compassion fatigue. It's sort of a, a recent thing where you sort of hear about so much you just sort of tune it out or forget about it. You may have experienced it if you're scrolling through Facebook and you see yet another post about a child in poverty or a school shooter or sex trafficking or something along those lines and you just keep scrolling. Um, I, I've done that. I, I'm, I'm certain most of us have. We kind of experience this fatigue and we can do one of two things. We can either do this kind of indifference or we can become hopeless and just sort of wallow in 
how bad things are and how broken and hurting people are and, and we just can't seem to do anything. Jesus does not fall into either one of those two extremes. His compassion produces action. His feeling for these people is what fuels the next thing, the thing he's about to say and then what he'll do in chapter 10 as well. So, the first thing that he does out of his compassion is he verbalizes the problem. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, or the laborers are few. Now, this is an agricultural um, analogy that you and I understand. There's more work than people. We get that. But most of us, we don't live in, we don't live in a farming town. I wouldn't say most of us. All of us. Vancouver's not a farming town. Uh, maybe the outskirts, there's some hobby farming, but really most of us, our day-to-day lives do not revolve around the harvest season, about, around planting and harvesting and crops and all of that. Um, so we can intellectually get it, but we might not feel like it's that big a deal. Um, so it's a loose analogy here, but try it. Imagine you go into work after a long weekend, you open up your email inbox, it's not just thousands, but there are tens of thousands of emails. Something huge happened, I don't know. And, and it's just unmanageable. You cannot respond to everyone. And let's say, let's say maybe a thousand of those are the, the ones you don't need to respond to, okay? You've got to respond to all of these. You're going to need some help. You're going to need a secretary. You're going to need someone who can respond to emails in your name. You're going to need something. You cannot do that all on your own. Or imagine you've uh, volunteered to coach your kid's soccer team. And you're expecting the first night of practice, 11 to 15 kids, and 50 show up. (laughs) You're just like, oh, what do I do? What do I do with 50 eight-year-olds, right? (laughs) I need help. I need another parent to be here. We need to break this up into a couple of different teams. You get it. Jesus sees this crowd. He has compassion on them, and he verbalizes that there's an issue here. That there is more work than people. The, the scope, the magnitude of the work is beyond the ability of the current workforce. And it's interesting to see what Jesus does not say here. Because he does not say what I think most of us would say. Most of us might say, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Recruit, therefore, workers for the harvest. Make flyers. Market to millennials and make harvest work seem interesting to young people again. (laughs) Let's get some money in here. Make harvest work um, a livable thing. let's, Let's create an internship program. Let's do something. Let's start doing. And he doesn't say that. Most of us, when we see a problem, we just want to solve it. And Jesus says, Ask the Lord of the harvest. It is not a lack of action. It's not a lack of evangelism that's the problem. That is a symptom of the problem. The lack of workers is not the problem. Prayerlessness is the problem. The solution is to pray, not to get more workers. Now, Jesus will immediately after this send out the twelve. That's what happens in chapter 10. He sends them out, and he sends out harvest workers into the field. But not before praying. I heard this great quote the other day. It goes like this. We have to do more than pray. 
but we cannot do more than pray until we pray. We have to do more than pray. We, we do need to strategize and make flyers and do whatever, okay, and recruit. That's, that, there's nothing sinful about that. But we can't do more than pray until we pray. How often do you see prayer as the obligatory add-on to your man-made solution as opposed to the God-given solution itself? The ESV catches a nuance here where it tells you to pray earnestly. There's a number of different words for pray in the Bible, and this is not the main one. It's used a number of times to pray, and it carries a a sense of desperation. In other places in Scripture, it's, it's used as beg. The idea is that we would plead desperately for God to do something about the hurt and the brokenness that we see in front of us. There's, there's a highlighted sense of need here. And prayer will be the engine that drives the ministry. That's going to be what produces any change. So, so for us as a church, if we want to reach students across the school with the Zone or Good News Club, we, we've got to pray. If we want to pack shoeboxes full of gifts for kids in poverty around the world, we've got to pray. If we want to reach gamers for Jesus, we've got to pray. If we want to go to Italy and put on a festival, we've got to pray. Because without prayer, nothing of any eternal consequence will happen. Your, your numbers might be great, they might not. We don't know. It just depends. But ultimately, in the eternal um, view, nothing will be accomplished unless you pray. Prayer is not the obligatory add-on. It's not the accessory. It is the central concern to our life and ministry as a church. And Jesus' solution here, it, it, it tells us a couple of things. At first, it kind of underlines what we already mentioned earlier, just the magnitude of it, the magnitude of the problem, that there's a lot. Things haven't gotten really better since then. There's still a lot of brokenness in our world, right? Right? There's still homelessness, there's still poverty, there's still people dying of hunger and civil war, drug addiction, sex trafficking. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, the world has not gotten much better. It just seems like we've got the same problem here. We've still got a lot of lost and broken and hurting people in the world who need the love of Jesus. That is still true today as it ever was. And so Jesus tells us, his, his solution tells us that that mess is far beyond what any one of us or even us collectively could accomplish on our own. Now, it's not beyond God, obviously, okay? God is able to handle everything. And why God chooses to work through people, I don't know, but that's what he chooses to do. Jesus did not show us the magnitude of the problem to say that it's beyond him. It was to show his disciples it was beyond them. It wasn't the harvest is plentiful, so get to work, do 12 hours a day, 60 hours a week, do whatever it takes. He didn't say that. He said pray because the problem's bigger than what you'll ever be able to do. And so all of us as a church, I mean, we need to feel, we need to do ministry, we need to, we need to be reaching out to these lost and hurting people, but the problem is bigger than what we can handle. But it's not just the size. His solution also tells us that the nature of the work needs prayer. The nature of the work. It's not just that there's a lot of them, but it's the type of work that needs to be done. In verse six, remember it says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
The Bible uses this shepherd imagery to talk about spiritual leaders all over the place. In Ezekiel, God has this stinging indictment of the religious leaders of that day, calling them false shepherds, shepherds that have abandoned the flock. Um, and Jesus will call himself the good shepherd. In fact, did you know that the, that the term pastor, the English word pastor, comes from a Latin word meaning pastor? Or, wow, surprising. <laughs> Meaning shepherd. Pastor's a Latin term meaning shepherd. Shepherd is just, it's a title that the Bible seems to give to spiritual leaders. And here's the thing. There were plenty of spiritual leaders those days. The problem is none of them were shepherds. It was the spiritual leaders who killed Jesus. They did not have the heart of a shepherd. To go into Jesus' analogy out of John 10, they were more like a hired hand who was there only for the money and cared nothing for the sheep. And as soon as any danger came, they left. That's what the religious leaders were like those days. And so it's not that they didn't have spiritual leaders, it's just that they were terrible. (laughs) They were not good leaders. Now Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Peter will call him the chief shepherd. Ultimately, what you and I know is that these people, their, their ultimate need, their deepest need is for Jesus, right? Is for him to be their good shepherd. If they're, if they're sheep without a shepherd, what they need is him, not us, right? Jacob was actually the first person um, all the way back in Genesis. A guy named Jacob was the first person to describe God as his shepherd. So not only are spiritual leaders described as shepherd in the, shepherds in the Bible, but in the ultimate sense, God is the shepherd. And in fact, one cool way that you can see Jesus being sort of foreshadowed as this ultimate shepherd is all the way back in Numbers, which is the fourth book of the Bible. It's a long time before Jesus was on earth. And there's this moment where God tells Abraham, or Moses, excuse me, God tells Moses to climb this mountain and take a look at the promised land, but then you're gonna die, is what he tells Moses. And Moses prays something that is very much in line with what Jesus says here. Um, It's gonna be on the screen. It's in Numbers 27. It says this, Moses spoke to the Lord, May Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out, to come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses sees the same need that Jesus does. His is more preventative. The people have had a pretty good shepherd up until this point with Moses. And he says, if I die I mean, he's not being egotistical here. If I die, these people, they need a leader. They need somebody, God. Would you please raise somebody up to care for them, to lead them? So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. And then it'll go on to talk about the anointing that's gonna happen and all of that. Um, Joshua and Moses both serve as what are called types of Christ, What that means is their lives sort of foreshadow who Jesus is and what he's going to be like. They're not exactly like imprints, but there's hints. And so I think when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, this is at least in part one of the things that's in his mind. 
And, and I think it's just so cool. I mean, this is one of the things that goes to show us the Bible's unified whole. Joshua is just the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. Did you know that? Jesus in, in Hebrew would just be Yeshua, which is Joshua. It means the Lord saves. So um, it's not too much of a stretch here to say Moses prays that God would raise up a shepherd and God says, if you're going to take the Greek form of it, Jesus. Raise up Jesus and he's going to be the one. Now, like I said, Joshua's not going to be a perfect representation and, and later Christ will obviously ultimately fulfill that prayer. But I just think it's so cool. It was something I saw in the, in the study and I just wanted to share it with you guys to show us, man, Throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus being raised up as this perfect leader that these people need. And it's not just them who needs him. It's us. It's not just this crowd, and it, it would include the disciples that he was praying or speaking to, and it includes us here today. We need Jesus to be our good shepherd. You need Jesus to be your good shepherd. Without him, we're going to be like wandering sheep. This is exactly what Isaiah says a prophet in the Old Testament, he said that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have each wandered, everyone, into his own way. We, we have wandered away from God. And Jesus is the one who can bring us back, the only one who can bring us back. So I don't know if you're out there this morning, if, if there's anyone in this room that's feeling like they're kind of far from God, or maybe you've been far from God for a while. Maybe you've never even felt close to him. I just want to let you know this morning that Jesus is your good shepherd. He can be your good shepherd. He can bring you back to God. If you are feeling like you're harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd, your ultimate answer is Christ. That's, that's your ultimate need. If you want to know more about that, if you, if you have questions, if that stirs something in you, chat with me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more. Okay, so that's great. God's a great shepherd. That's what people really need. And, you know, there's some cool intertextual stuff going on there. So why wouldn't Jesus tell his disciples to pray along those lines? Why doesn't Jesus say, hey, pray that they would follow me as their good shepherd. Pray that those people would see me and turn to me. He doesn't say that. He says, pray that God would raise up harvest workers. And here's my point. Jesus intends to care for his people through people. Jesus intends to care for his people through people. One of the ways that Jesus intends to shepherd you and to shepherd me is through under-shepherds, through other people, which is staggering if you think about it because he's way more capable than you and I of being the good shepherd. And yet he chooses, he chooses to work through people. And so that's why Jesus says to raise up harvest workers. And just so you know, that's not just pastors and elders and people who can stand up front and talk. That, that's not what that means. Harvest workers is anyone who's willing to be used by God for the care of another person. The Bible teaches that all of us have been given a gift for the good of the church. Okay, All of you, whether you feel like you can stand up front and talk or not, you have something to offer. You're the harvest workers. It's not a select few it is all of us. Christianity is not, it is not an um, observation sport. We are all to be active participants. Some of you, some of you are, like I said this earlier, really good at 
loving and caring for people and being encouraging, you can do that for the glory of God, for the, the spread of the gospel, for the glory of God's name. You can do that in the name of Jesus. And that's, that's a harvest type work. Some of you are, are really good at showing hospitality. And you can make people feel safe and welcome in your home or just in your presence. I have a friend, it's like, it's like when people are around her, they just spill their guts. Like she doesn't even ask them to. They just like feel safe and feel like they can just talk. That's a gift of hospitality, just a feeling of warmth and safety in her presence. Uh, some of you are really good at organizing and administrating and putting things together. Some of you are really intellectual and you could be a teacher or you could write. The point is, every one of you has something to offer for the kingdom. And now this harvest work can include all sorts of things, but I want to I focus in on one uh, because it's an area where our church needs to grow and it is also the one that this passage is most widely used for, and that is evangelism and outreach. Like I said, all of us have been given a gift. God gifts the church with what's needed to accomplish the mission of the church. Okay? To say it in another way, God has given Philida Bible Church people with every gift and type of personality needed to reach this community for Jesus. For that reason, I am convinced that some of you have the gift of evangelism and you don't even know it. I'm convinced that some of you are way more capable of leading people to Christ than you realize. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to pray that God would raise those people up in our church and that God would draw people from our community to Jesus through you. I'm not, I'm not raising you up as, as some sort of elite gift. I'm just saying that's an area where we seem to be weak, so let's pray that God would raise those people up. I, I've got a friend who's got this gift of evangelism. <laughs> he worked at a Papa Murphy's while we were going to school together, and he was robbed at gunpoint. Um, Papa Murphy's doesn't have a lot of money. I don't <laughs> should choose another place, but the guy got caught, and so my friend was um, on the witness stand during the trial and everything, and at the end, I don't know if it was the lawyer or the judge, I can't remember exactly who asked him, but it was basically like, hey, Ben, do you have anything else you feel like you need to say for the good of the, the court or anything? And my friend, he brought a Bible with him, and he goes, he stands up, and he looks the robber in the eye, and he says, I just want you to know that I forgive you, and that I love you, and that Jesus loves you and died for your sins, and I brought you a Bible if you want to read it. Isn't that awesome? I don't, I don't know if that guy came to know Christ or not, but I'm just saying, like, it would not have occurred to me to do that. <laughs> he, he also, he went to New York to visit his brother. He's staying in a hotel, and this hotel had some doorman or security guard, and he's nonchalantly, like, waiting for a bus, not intending to talk to this person about God or anything, and the, the doorman just kind of, like, lets out his life story and talks about how he, like, walked away from church as a kid and has kind of been wondering lately. And my friend, like, leads him back to Christ that day in, like, 10 minutes. You're like, dude, are you, are you crazy? Some of you, the, the reason I'm telling you these stories is some of you, I think if you were really to let yourself be used by God, I think stories like that could happen. You'll be at a bus stop, and someone will sneeze, and you'll say, God bless you, and they'll say, what do I need to do to be saved? <laughs> That might be extreme, but I'm just saying, God, God I'm, I'm just convinced of it, that it's, it's there. So, 
There are lots of broken and hurting families in our community. May God use us as a church. May we pray fervently for them. And may God raise up harvest workers from among us. Because it's the same people who are praying who need to be willing to go. I mean, he tells his disciples to pray in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, he calls the 12 and he sends them out. So Jesus will do more than pray. Jesus will send them out. He'll actually get to work if you want to make that distinction, which is really not biblical, but he'll do that and, and will do that, but not until we pray. Not until we pray. So, we open the sermon uh, by sharing, I shared with you that quote from Jonathan Edwards and the story from the cross and the switchblade in New York City started just by people praying. What do you think would happen in Clark County and in Vancouver if we as a church were to commit ourselves to serious, not obligatory add-on accessory prayer, but central concern prayer for our community? What do you think God would do? It could be awesome. Maybe someone called the police on you. <laughs> for, in a good way. So, we're going to close in prayer. And if you were here last week, you'll remember um, that we're doing it a little bit differently. So for the next four, or I guess this week and the next two, um, you're going to be closing in prayer. So I'll just quickly remind you of how it works in case, uh, in case you weren't here last week. Imagine your pew is cut in half. And then the three or four of you turn around and get in kind of a semi-circle with the people behind you. And you're going to pray in groups. And I've, put, I've got these prayer prompts on the screen. So if, if you don't know what to pray or you just want to use these, you can do that. Fill in your name or other people's name in the blanks. And I mentioned this last week, but I know for some people, uh, praying out loud in a group is a big thing to ask. And so I recognize that. And I'll just say again what I said last week, which is if that's you, that's okay. You don't have to pray out loud. I'm not going to force you to do that. I I am going to suggest before we end doing this that you would try at least once, okay? That's that's just my suggestion for you to grow individually in prayer. Um, But you don't have to. You don't have to do it today, okay? But that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to give you a few minutes now to break your pew in half and cut in groups. And then uh, everyone just shake hands and Get to know each other's name for a minute so it's not totally weird. And just beware. <clears throat> beware of individuals or couples who aren't quite part of a group yet. All right, go ahead and start praying with your groups. And then after a few minutes, I'll close us in one large prayer. Go ahead and begin. Father, thank you, God. Thank you. It is so good to hear our church praying together. God, I ask that you would grow us as a church in prayer, that we as a church would uh, become people who pray routinely, that you would do something, that we would see prayer as the God-given solution. God, that we would turn to you when we face problems in life and ministry. And God, we ask that you would raise up Uh, within our midst, people who are evangelists and who are really good at sharing the gospel with others. And God, for the rest of us, that we would still not be afraid to speak, even if it's not our gift, that we would still grow as, as people who can share the gospel. 
And God, I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.